What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Get in your Bibles or your phone apps, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Hans. Good morning, Park Church. My name is Neil. Hey, Miguel was right. You guys talk back a little more. I feel like in the Highlands, it's just kind of like silence, and you gotta, you gotta, gotta fish for it a little more. It's my first time downtown on a Sunday. Uh, my name is Neil Long. Uh, my wife is Erin. We have two boys, uh, three and a half year old Everett, and a COVID baby who's now 14 months, which is crazy to think about, uh, named Asher. Um, my wife and I have been a part of Park Church for almost 10 years. I've uh, been on staff for about seven. And yeah, thanks for welcoming me downtown, having me here. But I was saying that to someone earlier. I'm like, you guys didn't really have a choice. <laughs> I'm on the schedule, so here I am. Um, but it's fun to see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, but also I recognize a lot of you um, I haven't met before. So even after service, if you want to introduce yourself, I'll try to hunt some of you down. I'd love the chance to uh, get to know your name, a little bit of your story. Um, and yeah, as we continue to, to feel like one church in two locations, this is, yeah, it's a joy to be down here with you guys. We are in Psalm 115. Um, before we, we jump in, maybe a, a quick word about um, the, the day that is today, 4th of July, Independence Day for the United States of America. Um, I was processing a little bit with my wife this morning, just some of the tensions that we can feel on a day like today. Uh, on the one hand, I think there's really good reason to celebrate. Uh, the, the freedoms that are afforded by this country, by living in this country. Uh, I think the, the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation and um, Constitution and other, other documents, the Federalist Paper, these are a good foundation for understanding uh, elements of human freedom as God has designed them. Uh, but at the same time, we have to recognize that for many, for many in this country, 
Uh, that, that freedom has been experienced in much different ways, even in absence of it throughout America's history. And so even a day like today can bring some of that internal tension and, and, and even frustration um, as we're celebrating on the one side, but also feeling a sense of, uh, of grief at the same time. But there's, there's a third tension that I think we, we have to feel as Christians. And that's that whatever degree of freedom we may experience in a particular political system or a nation state, however a country is formed or reformed over time, uh, however proximate we come to dimensions of human freedom, uh, it's never going to fully satisfy. Uh, No kingdom of this earth can can actually satisfy the longings that we have for genuine freedom. Uh, We understand that, uh, that most of all, we long for a freedom that is only purchased through the person and work of Jesus. It comes to us through him, through his labor on the cross, through his resurrection, and the life that we have in him, creating a a separate alternative kingdom as we try to to navigate through this life as best we can. So just want to acknowledge the tension that that we should feel. Let's let's go and play cornhole and roast brats and drink a Coors Light if that's your thing. Um, But at the same time, let's let's recognize the complexity of of our our country's history, um, even as we, we celebrate today. Um, And now let me pray for us, and let's dive into Psalm 115. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. I think it it sometimes can be so easy to kind of gloss over uh, the gift of the fact that that you've revealed yourself to us. You've you've seen fit to communicate uh, who you are, to convey to humanity This is the God who made you. This is the God who loves you. This is what it looks like to to walk faithfully with you, to trust in you, to find hope in you. And so even now as we we dive into this text, I ask that we would would see more of who you are, see more of of this good revelation that, that, that leads to life, that leads to our true freedom. Even as we look at this passage on idolatry, being able to, to recognize what those are. Uh, Spirit, please come and, and work in our midst to convict us sweetly and kindly, invite us back into uh, the life that is, is put on offer through Jesus. Uh, so please help us even now. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm curious if any of you, like me, uh, have those, those particular movie moments that get etched in your brain. Uh, sometimes they're the, the more significant moments, kind of where the, the movie reaches a particular climax, and other times they're not. They're just kind of the mundane parts of the movie, but for some reason, uh, they stick with us. I know for me, one of those is in the movie Castaway. If you guys remember, it came out around the year 2000. Tom Hanks uh, played Chuck Noland, and he was a workaholic systems analyst for FedEx. And he's, uh, at one point in the movie early on, he's on a plane going across the Pacific in one of those large FedEx airplanes, and it goes down. Uh, And he seems to be the lone survivor. Uh, He makes his way to this otherwise uninhabited island uh, and seeks to survive, seeks to, to make it another day so hopefully, eventually, he could be rescued. And he mostly does that through the packages that, that wash ashore from the downed FedEx plane, um, all the, the boxes that kind of come ashore. And he's, he's, he's kind of opening one by one and seeing what he can find, saying, is this useful? Is this something that, that actually leads to my survival that I can make use of? And, and one, one of the packages that he opened was a volleyball, a Wilson volleyball, to be exact. 
And uh, later on, he's, he's trying to, to, to make a fire, and he's, he's like trying to, to take these, these rocks up against one another, and he gashes his hand open uh, pretty horrifically uh, to the point that it's, it's bleeding all over. And in a kind of a, a fit of anger, he begins grabbing the things from these packages and just like throwing them, chucking them across the, uh, the sand. And in one of those that he grabs is this volleyball. And once he, he finally calms down a little bit, he looks across, and then he sees what is almost looking back at him, the volleyball with this bloody handprint on it, Wilson. And then he, he grabs it, he, he draws a little face on it, and, and if you guys remember the movie, this becomes his companion on the island. And not just kind of like a prop, but this is something that he, he relationally connects to. He's processing the decisions that he's making. He's kind of facing the fears and the celebrations and the sorrows and the agony with Wilson. And over time, you're seeing yourself like grow attached to this inanimate piece of sports equipment. Later on in the movie, which, spoiler alert, but I feel like there's a statute of limitations on spoiler alerts. Like you've had two decades to watch the movie, so it's enough time. He eventually makes a raft. Makes a raft, and he, he, of course, Wilson is there with him, just kind of bare essentials, and he's making his way across the ocean to hopefully reach someone who can save him. And at one point, he falls asleep on the raft, and Wilson rolls off. Rolls off. And he eventually realizes that, and he is distraught. He's like doing everything he can, trying to swim and pull the raft, not lose his raft, but still get Wilson. And, and he, he finally realizes, I, I cannot rescue Wilson, my companion. And then he's just wailing. It's like weeping over this lost volleyball, and, and there's like tragic music in the background. And I cried. And not just like a couple tears, but I'm, I'm crying for the loss of this volleyball with a bloody handprint on it. And then I watched the movie again several months later, and I cried again. Like I knew it was coming, and I still cried again. But, and I would look back at that and be like, I, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Here is this piece of sports equipment that was formed in a fit of anger with, with someone's bloody hand with a face drawn on it. And I, I'd grown so like relationally connected to, like th- there's a sense of hope that was attached to this thing. Well, welcome to the way of idolatry. And all of us find ourselves on it at different points. Uh, This psalm uh, begins with a heartfelt cry for God's glory to be the preeminent thing in our lives. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. We'll come back to this in a few moments. And then in verse 2, it says, why should the nations say, where is their God? This really gives us the impetus for the next section, starting in verse 3, a large chunk of the psalm on idolatry, the the, the nature of idolatry. But here, those outside the community of faith are are looking in and saying, where is their God? Where is your God? So so likely something in that context, in that situation, is leading to a question of where is the God that has been communicated about and promised? You can imagine within the community of faith, they're asking something similar. Where is our God? Where is my God? Again, we'll come back to this in a bit. Before we do, I want us to see together how the psalmist instructs us on this thing of idolatry. Look at me in verses 3 and 4. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So he's drawn this comparison. 
Our God is the unmade maker. He dwells in the heavens authoritatively, sovereignly. He relates to us out of his own volition, does work within the world, and that's in comparison to the idols, the things that are crafted. Whereas God works and does things upon his creation, idols are done upon. They're worked upon. They have no authority, no, no, no power and ability in and of themselves. And because of this, idols only have the appearance of power and life, never the substance of it. Only the appearance of power and life. Look with me in verses 5 through 7. They, speaking of idols, they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. So this is a lot of the, the reason idols were created in the ancient world. Uh, there was some sort of insecurity, some sort of uh, desire or, or, or longing for prosperity. And so that, in that angst, there would, there would be a move to, well, let's, let's get to work. Let's make something. Uh, we need prosperity. We need fertility. We need blessing of some kind. And so let's, let's look around. Let's, let's kind of find the, the created things around us. Let's find uh, whatever we can to, to, to put our work and our labor upon it so that we can have a sense of hope, a sense of confidence, somewhere to, to, to rely and to trust. Because humans want to be blessed, this is the thing that we do. This is our, our, our base, the basic equation for idolatry. In the midst of our, our angst, our longings to be fulfilled, the desires that we have, and the, the anticipation that it's not going to be fulfilled unless we do something about it, we take our labor, our ingenuity, our energy, and we, we, we kind of work it through the raw materials around us, and then out on the other end comes something that we, we look to to give us hope, putting all of our attention, our energy, our affections, our longings toward it, trying to find some sort of identity, significance, meaning from the thing that has been crafted. Now, for us, we're, we're often more discreet than the ancient world, right? It's like, imagine the, the second commandment has kind of worked its way through Western society enough that we, we don't often find literal graven images kind of sitting around. I mean, you do in some places, but that's not typically the way idolatry works uh, in our society. But make no mistake, we are no less idolaters today than they were in the ancient world. We, we, we still have this longing, these desires. We, we take the, uh, our activity and place it upon the created world. And, and like the ancient world, we, we tend to have uh, what can be understood as cultural idols. So the things that are kind of looked to broadly and collectively that kind of keep the social fabric together. But then also our household idols, our personal, individual, or family idols. The things that kind of we think and we rely upon an individual level. This is the way life is going to work. If I have these things, if I pursue these things. So I want us to consider uh, just a, a couple what I think are cultural idols for us here in Denver. There are plenty others that I won't mention. But also uh, the, the many ways that we get splintered into our household idols as well. First cultural idol in Denver. Uh, one primary idol I think is, is that of pleasure. The idol of pleasure, which says, I will be satisfied, my life will have meaning, I will truly be fulfilled when... I have the right lineup of good experiences in my life. I have enough opportunities to, to pursue things that kind of bring me circum, circumstantial and, and like temporal happiness when I have good feelings about what I'm doing and the way my life looks like. 
when we can escape from sadness or suffering or difficulty, then my life will have meaning. You just got to perpetuate that thing, keep pursuing it. And so the way it often get work, gets worked out for many of us in Denver is like, wow, Denver is a beautiful city. There's much on offer here in terms of restaurant scene and breweries and coffee shops and entertainment. And then you got the mountains, which are very accessible. And you've kind of, whatever you can attach to your Subaru, like go pursue whatever recreation you want. We say, wow, all of these good gifts, which they are good gifts from God. But then we take them and we say, my life is found in these things. Like for me to have meaning, for me to have significance, for me to be okay, I must kind of continue and perpetuate this lifestyle of pleasure. Not really considering the cost on the other side. I think it's even easier for many of us to do uh, when we're, we're transplants to the city, which is, I think, majority of us. To come in and say, well, I don't necessarily owe the city anything. I don't necessarily owe the people around me anything. I'm, I'm here uh, to get what I can, to, to kind of craft a life that, that feels good, that I really desire, that I really want. And so the, the only cost that, that I should be giving up are the transactional costs to, to get the goods and services that kind of fulfill my longings for, for pleasure and a, a happy, enjoyable life. Well, even for those of us who don't feel like that, that is our life, we don't have the, maybe the financial freedom or the work schedule or whatever else to be able to pursue these things, it can no less be an idol. We still think like that, that's, that's when my life would mean something. That's when I would truly arrive. And so our lives will bend in that direction and say, if, if only, if only eventually I can get there and I can get little glimpses of it here and there. And the idol of pleasure, I think, gets worked out in many ways in Denver, uh, but it I think it intersects with all of us in, in at least some ways. A second primary cultural idol is that of autonomy, the idol of autonomy, autonomy which says, my, my life is meaningful and worth something and a good life to be lived when I don't have external constraints on me. Uh, it could be moral constraints or it could be on my time or schedule or energy. Like I, I, don't, I don't want people kind of telling me what my life should look like or what might be good for me. I want to feel a sense of freedom to pursue what I want, when I want. Well, kind of a, a desire to, uh, to push off anything outside of our own internal desires bubbling up. Well, I think it's, it's mislabeled as freedom uh, because for something to truly be free, we have to understand the nature of that thing, of that person. What are we made for? What's the, the end goal? What's the purpose? What's the structure of it? How is it actually put together? And when you begin living into that design and that direction and that purpose, that is when we find genuine freedom. But our culture often wants nothing to do with that. Um, autonomy, which is literally a law unto oneself. Uh, we don't want any sort of heritage or morality or religion, not even biology, to kind of come down on us and say, hey, this is what the good life might be. God, God might actually have desires for your life and what that looks like to submit to his word and his way. It's, it's fascinating when thinking about cultural idols, whether, whether pleasure, autonomy, or anything else. I, I think it's, it's easy for us, maybe if we don't immediately relate to it, and say, well, that, that's not me. I actually disagree with that. Like, I don't pursue pleasure. I don't want to pursue pleasure and autonomy. No, I actually live under constraints around me. I seek to do that. And yet at the same time, with cultural idols, it, it's enough in kind of the, the ether and the air that we breathe, it finds its way in. The idolatries find their way into our decision-making, our priorities, the way we structure our lives. 
And so it's good for us to pay attention to how have I been, been influenced? How, how am I kind of succumbing to the cultural idols around me? Well, then we have our many more kind of diverse set of household idols. I found typically these are connected to some desire for significance and security. Significance, I, I want to live a meaningful life. I, wanna, I want my life to mean something. And I want to be protected in that pursuit. So I'm going to run through a number of them. Perhaps some of these will resonate with us. I will be satisfied. I will be worth something. My life will have meaning. I can finally rest and have peace when I get this relationship. I get into this friend group. I get married. I have children. I get my children to obey me, or at least make me look like a good parent. Get this promotion. Get a secure job or a career track. Receive this next Amazon purchase. I get a good place to live. Finally buy a home. I get this home improvement project done, and then the next one, and the next one. Attain to some level of financial security. I get this academic degree. I'm finally healthy, and I don't have these same health struggles. I lose enough weight. I'm now attractive enough. I'm valued by those around me. Well, if only my husband or my wife would truly understand me. Well, if I could just be seen in all that I do to serve and to give of myself, to have my family restored, to accomplish enough, to get the approval of those around me, parents, spouse, boss, friends, to feel successful, to get rid of this shame, and on and on and on the list can go. It is exhausting. It's exhausting because this is the way of idolatry, to overpromise and underdeliver. Under again and again, we look to these things, we look to the created things around us to give us the life and to give us the power uh, that, that we think we need to be okay, that we're actually longing for in God, and we seem to get them initially. At least in the short run, it seems like we, we actually have a lot of life and energy and a lot of power and, and ability to do things, but over time, the life begins to be sucked away from us. We're left feeling frustrated, miserable, helpless, at least eventually. Sometimes it takes a while, but at least eventually we're left disappointed. Look with me in verse 8. Those who make them, so those who make idols, become like them, so do all who trust in them. So the crafters of the idols and the trusters of the idols, we become like the very thing that we worship. What we behold, we begin to image, we begin to reflect, we begin, begin to, to look more like, which really, we just become the worst version of ourselves. Because if you understand what an idol is, all it has to work with is our own kind of internal angst, our own internal longings for, for something to be better, and, and that, that, that output translates into some crafting of an idol. And all that idol can give us is, is more of the stuff that we put into it. And ultimately, we're left just like the idol, which is lifeless and powerless, not given the things that we long for. I remember a number of years ago um, processing with a, a mentor of mine some of the, my own idolatrous patterns that I was beginning to see. Kind of, I kind of knew it was kind of tucked away, but it was becoming a little bit more vivid. Um, I, I, for, the, for the first time, I tried to take a true intentional Sabbath. 
like a day just like cease labor. Stop doing things, just like rest in the love of God and enjoy his good gifts, enjoy who he is. And I was like, I, I'm not even going to start with a day. Let's start with a half day. And the first 30 minutes were phenomenal. I was like, I feel free, full of delight. I was like reading things I wanted to read. I was like sitting outside. And I think it was about minute 31, this like despair set in. Like this, this, this vortex, a spiral into shame and, and uh, regrets. Uh, feeling areas of failure in my life, just like this darkness kind of set in that I, that I didn't really want to have to pay attention to. And I remember processing um, with my mentor, and, and it's like kind of sharing some of these things with him. I was like, man, kind of chuckling to myself. I was like, it's almost like an addiction. And I looked back at him, and he was not smiling at me, just kind of like this death stare into my soul. I was like, oh, this is not like an addiction. This is an addiction. Because the thing that would actually keep those feelings at bay, to, 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 to kind of put the, the feelings of shame and inadequacy and everything else, to put them away, all I had to do was get back to work. It could be paid work, it could be unpaid work, house, project, whatever else. I just, I wanted to go do something that, that felt productive, like I could point to my achievement. Say, this, this gives my life meaning. Now I'm worth something because look what I've done. And I can point to it, I can look at it, I can feel good about myself. But as soon as I stopped doing that, I felt inadequate. Looking to created things to find identity, to find meaning, to find significance. And this is what we do with idols. And then making sacrifices to uphold them. Even as I reflected on, on, on that season and still seeing ripple effects of that same idolatry in my life today. Recognizing that we make sacrifices to get the promised blessings of the idol. Sometimes we sacrifice ourselves, our own mental health, our own spiritual health. Our relationships. We begin sacrificing the people around us. We make sacrifices to get the demands that we think are coming to us from the idol. What's fascinating to me uh, in studying this passage is that the, the commentators didn't really agree on the context for the psalm. Um, a lot of times they'll just say, hey, we don't know the context, so there you go. Other times they say, oh, it's, it's given to us, we're pretty clear on it. This one, there were opinions, but there wasn't alignment on it. Now, some would say this is a really deep, dark season for Israel, uh, full of estrangement, perhaps during their exile. Others said, actually, this psalm was probably written right on the, the heels of a victory of some kind, some sort of success. You know, that's why it launches in with verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, because the temptation would be to, to praise yourself for that victory. Others would say, well, it's, it, was a, it was a troubled season, but it wasn't devastating, so maybe like post-exile, during restoration, and still another commentator said this is just generally a psalm of trust for all seasons. And I wonder if this kind of lack of clarity on a particular context is instructive for us in recognizing there is this abiding temptation. No matter how good life is going for you right now, how circumstantially well things feel, or how devastating it is, or how mundane life feels. It's kind of like, man, I'm just kind of doing the things and, and keeping things afloat. There is this abiding temptation to run after idols. There's an abiding temptation to, to look to created things for a sense of confidence and security and significance and for hope and for, for, for courage, no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves. And that is most of all because what we long to get in the idol, we are meant to get from God. We're meant to receive from God, and He longs to give it to us. He longs to give us these things. Look at me in verses 
9 through 13. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. One pastor and author has said that if God says something once, we listen carefully. If he says it twice, we pay strict attention to it. And if he says it three times, we're to drop it all and give full attention to, study, ponder, memorize, meditate on, and joyfully obey whatever it is. And here we have such an instance. O Israel, the, the collective assembly of God's people, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. O house of Aaron, the, the priests, the, the ones who are meant to mediate relationship between God and his people, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. All those who fear the Lord, so including the, the proselytes into the Jewish community, all those who would look to God, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. I think in, in really particular ways, we're a society in search of stability, uh, somewhere to, to find confidence and rest, uh, somewhere to, to trust. Uh, currently in the U.S., trust in our, our kind of mediating institutions of societies at an all-time low. Probably most representative would be our, our media institutions that are, that are designed to be this like un, unbiased reporter of dispassionate facts, and I think has been anything but for the most part. Um, but confidence is at an all-time low for our, our basic institutions. Additionally, according to Pew Research, 21% of U.S. adults are experiencing high levels of psychological distress. That's the high levels, not even kind of like the moderate to moderate high levels of psychological distress. Medications for anxiety, depression, and insomnia, uh, which spiked early on in COVID, remain high. Now, this is not to, to stigmatize uh, any of us in this room that are taking medications for these things. There are often really good reasons for that, and many of us have been on those medications. Uh, but rather to recognize the general trends of our society, of our culture, collectively, we are longing for somewhere to, to put our trust. But who can we rely upon? Uh, what voice can we listen to? Who, who do we look to to find the confidence that we long for? Well, I think this part of the text hits on the things in particular that we want, that we, we, we often seek in idols. In verse 12, it says, the Lord has remembered us. I think we long to be remembered, to be seen, to be known, to be recognized. Yes, kind of in what's going on externally, but I think even more so what's going on internally. The questions that we have, the stresses that we feel, uh, the doubts that we experience, the frustration that we're walking through, the, the loss, even the joys and the celebrations, to be remembered. And God's remembrance, it's not just kind of like a, like a recalling to mind as if, he, as if he had forgotten something. He has to kind of bring it back to mind. His remembrance is always tied to his covenant, the relationship he's established with us. And, it, and when the text says that he remembers, it means that he's getting ready to act on our behalf. He's getting ready to do something on behalf of those he's established covenant relationship with. We want a God who will take action on behalf of his people. And this is what we have, looking just above at the text, that he is our help and our shield. We're able to trust in him because he is our help and our shield, able to do something about what he sees, what he recognizes within us. In his remembrance, he's able to get to work, to do something for us, and not only in the midst of that, but also 
out ahead, anticipating what's in front to be our protection, to be our security, to be our shield. In short, I think we want to be blessed. We want to be blessed. And that's a word that gets thrown around in conversation and hashtags and everything else. I think it loses a lot of its uh, kind of the depth and the nuance of its meaning. Um, And it it does. It often means uh, the the kind of giving of prosperity or life more generally, uh, often from the greater to the lesser. Um, but it, it also works in both directions. The lesser can say that the, uh, one will, will bless, we will bless the Lord. And that often uh, shows that we are, are, are going before the Lord, kneeling before him, prostrate, prostrate even before him, recognizing who he is, looking to him, trusting in him. And so wherever there is a blessing, we, we recognize there is a blesser and one who receives that blessing which highlights the relationship between the two. So whenever there's blessing being talked about, what's, what's, what's kind of underneath it all, in any case, it's highlighting the type of relationship between the blesser and the one who receives that blessing. And we recognize that that relationship is marked by God's remembrance of us and him being our help and our shield. In short, he is the one who blesses his people. And this takes us back to verses one through three. Look at me in verse one. Not to us, O Lord, Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And then verse two, why should the nations say, where is their God? I think it's often in those where is their God moments, those seasons that we're in, we begin wondering like, where is God? Where is God? I I know true things of his character. I know things from his word. I know what he's communicated, what he's promised. I know he's worked in the past. But where is God right now? It doesn't seem like my life, my circumstances, what I'm experiencing right now doesn't seem to line up with what I know to be true of God, what he's communicated about himself. And I think it's in those moments in particular that we come face to face with our idolatry, both in the sense of what we have been trusting in, but then also the things that we we tend to want to pursue in those moments of instability. And at that point, we must turn and declare again, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Not my desires, not my will, not the the strategies and the things that I've looked to in the past to find hope, to find confidence, to find meaning that have kind of gotten me through before. Uh, Maybe that season that you're walking through right now is actually God in his kindness, in his severe mercy, kind of unveiling places that that you've been running to, that you've been kind of finding your confidence in. And he's saying, look to me. Go back to this refrain of not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Why? Because his steadfast covenantal love, his faithfulness knows no bounds with his people. The fullest answer to the question, where is their God, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where is their God? Well, he has come to us in his sovereignty, in his kindness, in his grace. He has condescended to our plight, to our brokenness, uh, to take on humanity, to take on flesh, everything except for sin in order to experience and walk through life as we have walked through it, to participate in the same brokenness, to be able to relate to his people and to say, I will take all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt upon myself on the cross and then raised to new life. All of your idolatry, all the places that our hearts and our minds and our affections run, trying to take the raw materials around us and say, I want to craft a good life apart from God. He says, I will take all of that upon myself. I will bear the penalty of sin. I will bear the curse 
I will bear your sin and then come to new life so that you may have blessing, so that God may remember you according to my work. But not only that, we may also trust in the God who will sustain our lives forever. Look with me in verses 17 through 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Kind of the, the implicit argument here is that, well, God has, has made us and remade us to praise him, to acknowledge him, to, to recognize who he is, to worship him. And the dead don't do that. You must be alive to do that. And so we must also be alive. We must also be alive toward him. And this is probably an early nod to the resurrection that we see in Christ coming later in the New Testament that we will have life with him forever because we cannot do the very thing that we've been made to do unless we have this life that is sustained. So that pulls us into the present moment. We have confidence in Christ's prior work, that he has remembered us, he is our help and our shield, he has blessed us in his person and work. At the same time, we have the, the future hope of glory that one day we will dwell in perfection. No more brokenness, no more tears, no more grief, no more sorrow, no more pain in the new heavens and new earth, dwelling with God perfectly. What does that mean for us here in this moment? I think especially for those of us who, who maybe are familiar with the refrain of Jesus is the answer. You know, he is the way forward. Or even the refrain of not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. It's like, yes, 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 but, but will you please give me something that works? Please give me something that makes sense of the, the immediate things around me. Yes, hope in Jesus. Yes, the, the hope of the resurrection. But I'm living right here, right now. What does it mean to walk with Jesus with hope now? That was about five years ago that my wife and I were in the thick of navigating infertility. Uh, longing for a child, uh, longing for a good gift, a good gift that, that God often gives uh, through different ways. You know, we're facing doctors and specialists and questions and theories and conversations and opinions and on and on and on. It was exhausting. It was painful, disorienting. Um, and in the midst of that, we would often remind one another, hey, Jesus does love us. Let, let's look to the cross. Let's look what he's done for us in the cross and resurrection. And let's, let's look ahead to the future hope of glory that one day we will dwell with God forever. But then we had to go back to the phone conversation with the doctor. You know, we had to make a decision on, are we moving forward with this or not? Uh, what questions do we have around these things? What, what kind of wise counsel do we want to bring in? It was, it was very practical, and we had to make decisions around that. I think verse uh, 16 is instructive when it comes to situations and seasons like that. Look at me in verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. This is not to say that the God has like, created things and be like, ah, I'm disinterested, kind of like carry on, let me know how it goes, I'll check in every once in a while, or that he's not involved. Like, he's, he's very much intimately involved with creation. But at the same time, it says that, that we've been made stewards under God's good reign. In his sovereignty, in his freedom, he's seen fit to, to place us as stewards of creation. We're to live under him with this refrain of not to us, O Lord, but to your name, doing things, making decisions, going to work, processing life, and moving forward. Which means that whatever your set of circumstances are like right now, whatever season you are in, 
No matter heartache or brokenness or loss or grief, no matter uh, what, what bliss you're experiencing right now, maybe things are going really well for you. In the midst of all of that, God has called you to that particular season, to that particular decision, to, to, to what's in front of you. And he's equipped you and gifted you the opportunity to move forward with confidence, knowing that his love is for you, that he has not abandoned you in the midst of it. All the while knowing that we're not guaranteed to receive the good gifts that we long for. Uh, my wife and I have uh, two sons, and we're extremely grateful for them. We were never guaranteed them. And we're not guaranteed them tomorrow as well. So even as we, we receive the good things from God, we must recognize we go back to him saying with the same refrain, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. We recognize who he is. And because of that, because of his work, because of the hope that we have in his work, we're able to move forward in this life. Unless we think it's just the, the bigger stuff of life, quote unquote. Uh, this hits us in the everyday decision-making, the everyday process, the everyday going to work and spending time with friends and making decisions and just the, the ups and downs of everyday life. May we be a people that come back to this refrain over and over and over again. Not to us. Not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name give the glory. Let us look to him. Let us trust in him. Let us abide in this love and find our hope in who he is. I want to give us a, a couple minutes to, to respond. Um, before I do, let me, let me pray for us. Then I've got a couple questions for us to, to reflect on. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, thank you for your work. Thank you for uh, what you've done for us on our behalf. And that you invite us into the life that you've purchased. And so the places that, that our hearts and our minds and our affections and our energy and the labor of our hands run different directions um, that are away from you, elevating the good gifts you've given in a position they're not meant to be, I ask that you would give us the gift of repentance. Now help us to turn away from death and toward life. And we look to the, the unmade maker, the one who gives good gifts. And when you don't, there's good reason for it. And we can trust you in it. And so please help us, even now, as we have some time to, uh, to, to meditate, to process. Spirit, come search us, know us. Uh, try every, every thought, every inclination within us. And then as we come to, to take communion, I, I ask that that would be a true a communication of your grace that we would experience again of the reality of your death and resurrection for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.